Today's quote comes from a Welsh myth, and to read this quote, our very own Welshman, Tom Hughes, is here. All right, well, first I have to give a little bit of backstory. So this quote has to do with how a, a goddess tried to figure out how to kill a demigod, and the result was her turning into an owl, and that's how she turned into a creature of the night. So the way she has to kill this demigoddess is he can only be killed at dusk, wrapped in a net with one foot on a bath and one on a black goat. By a riverbank and a spear forged for a year during the hours when everyone is at mass. With this information, she arranges his death. Uh, she's unsuccessful, and uh, she turns into an owl. All right. Well, let's, <laughs> let's cue the creepy music. All right. Uh, Tony, the producer, says we don't have the budget for creepy music, so I'll uh, just cue what we got then. Hey, y'all. I'm Paul Sievers, interpreter with Great Parks of Hamilton County, and you are listening to Take It Outdoors, a Great Parks of Hamilton County podcast. This is a show where you can enjoy the outdoors from the indoors. I wish this was episode 13, but alas, it is only episode 8. Why do I wish it was 13? Because this is our Halloween Spectacular! We're going to do something a little different with this episode. We're going to discuss the creepy, the horrific, and the scary. The things that want to suck your blood, or at least the things we think want to suck our blood. We're going to break down the creepy, the horrific, and the scary, and see why they really aren't all that bad. In fact, they're actually beneficial. But we'll also take the seemingly benign and beautiful, pull back the mask to reveal the terrible and the terrifying. To do that, of course, as you heard at the top of the show, I am joined by Tom the Terrible Hughes, East Region Interpreter with Great Parks of Hamilton County. Tom, thanks again for joining us on Take It Outdoors, the Halloween Spectacular! Thank you for joining me, Mr. Paul, the productively terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not very good at making up names. (laughs) Paul the, 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 no, that doesn't work either. Paul the Seavers, the the deceiver. There we go. Paul Seaver the deceiver. I got it. Side note: nothing on today's show will, is a lie, though. Just to be clear. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna start off the show here talking about things again that we think are terrifying. We're gonna break them down to see that they're really not that terrifying. So we're gonna start with bats and talk about some common myths that people have about bats. The first one is that they fly in your hair. Tom, Which true or false? False, mostly, for the most part. 99.9% of the time, if you're walking through the forest, even if you're walking through a cave, you are not going to get a bat flying in your hair. And part of the reason because of that is, yes, they can see, but the echolocation is so incredibly powerful and incredibly awesome that, that you are kind of like it's it's like if your eyes are wide open at 12 in the afternoon and you walked right into the empire state building so we should be thankful that bats don't have cell phones to distract them offline that is exactly right yeah no no distracted bats uh, on social media <laughs> and here's something else to keep in mind if people have said hey a bat did fly in my hair chances are one if you're outside Well, bugs are attracted to you. Bats are attracted to those bugs. So they might start to swoop towards you thinking there's bugs, but when they see, nope, it's a human, they're not going to fly at you. And the other thing is, is if you have a bat in your house, where are you going to go in that room? 
you're get, if you're not exiting the room, as most people would, you're going to go right to the middle of that room. Well, as a bat makes its trajectory from one side of the room to the other, it's going to swoop down and swoop back up right through the middle of the room. Coincidence that that's where you're probably going to be standing. What I've learned recently, which is amazing, is that while the bats aren't going to fly in your hair, they're actually having aeronautical battles with each other and other moths which I just find astounding. So basically there's a species of moth that can create an, their own echolocation and it will, um, as the bat you, uh, sends out its echo call, the moth will create their own and it will jam the bat so that the bat misses the moth, which I just think is amazing. And then it turns out that other bats are in on this by creating their own jamming calls. So moths are trying to jam the bats while other bats are trying to jam the other bats so then they can eat that original jamming moth. I I just think that's amazing that we've got this, you know, battle in the air and we're not paying any attention to it at all. All we're caring about is, oh my goodness, is that thing going to fly in my hair when they have really no interest in you at all? Myth number two, they suck your blood. They kind of, some lap it, right? They, okay. they, they lap it. I like that word, lap. So, you know, so yes, okay, they don't suck your blood, right? 99% of uh, bats, uh, they either eat fruit or they eat moths and mosquitoes, which is incredibly beneficial to us. There is a few, I believe it's three species. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, let me know, Paul. Three species. I I believe it's three species of vampire bat that live in South America. Some actually specialize towards birds, which is kind of interesting. But the one that we know, the one that uh, drinks a blood, is the one that likes to go after mammals and cows. And what they do is they wait till the wee hours of the night, and they'll crawl up, and uh, they'll give give the cow a bite. And uh, they kind of lick the blood up. Don't live in Ohio, though. They like it nice and warm and and nice and hot. So the ones around here, they they eat mosquitoes and they eat moths. And I've heard uh, that supposedly one little brown bat could eat a thousand mosquitoes in an hour. So we are worried about a species that we think is going to drink our blood, when in actuality, they're eating thousands of species that actually will drink our blood. That, that is absolutely correct, yeah. So they're actually stopping the real vampires from harming us. Now, if anybody in the uh, podcast of here has an issue with the thousand uh, mos- uh, mosquitoes an hour, I have learned that the actual scientific study, what they did is they put a little brown bat in a room and they saw how many inse- uh, mosquitoes it could eat in one minute and then they timed it by 60. So if you're a little brown bat, once you get to like the 600th mosquito, you're probably kind of full. So they may not actually eat a thousand mosquitoes in an hour, but what I also learned is that um, scientists check, by the way, if you want to be a scientist, this is the really cool stuff you get to do. You get to check the poo of little brown bats and actually get the DNA from the poo. And they discovered that 100% of that poo was uh, mosquitoes. So that was pretty much the only thing these little brown brats were eating. Um, we do have about 13 different kinds of bats, arguably, in Ohio. And um, the little brown bats are the ones that eat the vampires, the mosquitoes, while the bigger bats, like the eastern red bat, the hare bat, the silver-haired bat, um, they go after things like moths. So they don't really want to eat the mosquitoes. So so if you really want to be, you know, technical about it, yes, our bats are amazing. They don't fly in our hair. Not all of them might be eating all the mosquitoes, but that's okay because they're still really cool. Myth number three, and this really isn't a myth, it's just something that's really overblown, is that bats carry rabies. Now, yes, bats do carry rabies. Any mammal can carry rabies, but let's bring it down to the actual honest terms. When I did some research, according to the CDC, 
only 6% of bats tested actually carried rabies. Now, that doesn't mean 6% of the bat population. That's just those that were tested in the first place. So if somebody found it, was able to take it safely and turn it in for testing, only 6% of those were actually found to be positive with rabies. The issue really is that when you find a bat and you're able to pick it up, chances are there's something wrong with that bat. A nice, healthy bat is going to be flying around in the evening time above your head, not coming and posing any threat to you. But if it's laying in your yard in the middle of the day, chances are that's going to be sick and that will lead to a possible confrontation with that bat and it could possibly have rabies. But a great quote is, love your own, leave other animals alone. So if you see a bat like this, Find somebody who knows what they're talking about, call ODNR, Hamilton County Health Department, and they will better inform you on what to do in those cases. But you certainly don't want to pick it up. They have very sharp teeth. Not they're going to bite through your finger, but any bite could transfer saliva, and you just want to minimize that risk. It's a small risk, and you, of course, want to minimize that as much as you can. Yeah, I love wildlife. I love nature, but I haven't had my rabies shots, and I do know the statistics about, you know, the small chances of the bats having rabies, but if I see a bat during the daytime on the ground, I ain't going to touch him. I'm going to leave him alone for the most part. Um, And to be honest, as I said, leave things alone. Most cases of rabies uh, are due to domestic animals, right? Cats, dogs. Um, I know it's not very common nowadays. Uh, Like I I was was just looking it up uh, earlier. Uh, Here it says there were in 2015, only three human rabies cases were reported to the CDC. Now, unfortunately for those three rabies cases, um, it's going to be fatal, which is the scary thing about rabies, is that if you catch rabies and the symptoms show, it is 100% fatal. And how it kills you is is just, you know, uh, horrifying. Basically, you become afraid of water. Um, you start uh, becoming uh, just angry and infuriated and confused, and you can't even tell people what's wrong with you. And uh, maybe we'll talk this about this in a little bit, but that maybe that's where the myth of uh, vampire vampires and bats and vampires turning into other animals came from, because people would encounter people that seemed unusual and they seemed like they were a little out of it and then they were found like attacking people and then they would be dead and that association of that angry demonic maybe getting infested by a demonic being maybe had a little due to the fact that maybe there was rabies cases and and obviously people didn't know what rabies was back then so kind of interesting I believe, not to contradict you, but I believe there was one person who has successfully survived rabies. That is true. So it's one of my favorite subjects, right? I love these guys. They're they're one of my favorite critters. And to be honest, even I get freaked out by them. Uh, If I'm walking in the forest and there's a, uh, I'm having a good old time and all of a sudden I get a face full of web. I I handle these guys. I hang out with them. I think they're really neat. Uh, But even I might squeal like a uh, child if uh, they surprise me to the point. And to be honest, they are kind of scary. And I completely understand why people are afraid of these guys. What are we talking about, Paul? I'm going to use some context clues. Since you said (laughs) web, I'm going to go with spiders. No, I'm talking about Spider-Man costume players, (laughs) Paul. Well, you got <laughs> cosplay can be can be creepy. <laughs> no, yes, no, we're talking no about spiders to the cosplay. and all uh, 620 species of spider in Ohio. Do you have a favorite spider, Paul? Do I have a favorite spider? You know, one of my favorites is probably the argiope. 
well, I don't know what that is. Go ahead. Uh, uh, expand, Paul. <laughs> so it's some people might refer to it as a, a garden spider. Although, oh, see, it goes to show my ignorance. I say how much I love spiders. You're talk, you talking about the yellow-banded garden spider or the... Yeah. Yes. And so this spider... <laughs> Paul with his scientific names. I love this spider because <laughs> it's big. It's obvious. It's, yeah. it's docile, like most spiders. But what I love about it is it weaves a thicker web right through a thick strand right through the middle and as folklore would tell you is it's writing your future in its web as soon as i can learn to translate that i'm hoping it'll say like hey you'll be a millionaire soon all you have to do is this i don't know but either way <laughs> i love that that you know there's that folklore that um yeah it's, it's and, writing your future and if you were to accidentally encounter the spider would it hurt you would it would it would it take you to the hospital if it were to bite you. Absolutely not. No. If it was right? to bite me in the first place. If it was to bite you, which it probably wouldn't, which is the case, and and which I've kind of um, dealt with, is that we have um, about 620 species of spider in Ohio. Only two of them are known to be medically important, and the really interesting and kind of cool thing about that is that one has a hematoxin, which is the brown recluse. It basically make, makes your um, flesh rot and your blood congeal, which is kind of neat. Um, the other one is the black widow, which affects your nervous system. It gives you heart palpitations. It can uh, it, it can uh, m- make you not feel so good. Make you make you want to go to um, you know throw up and all that kind of stuff. But um, to be honest, even those guys, for the most part, if you do get bit, ninety percent of the time you you'll be okay. I don't think there's been any actual um, black widow deaths in well like fifty years or something like that. And as Paul would say, uh, his garden spider. What was the scientific name again, Paul? It's Argaipi. I think it's Argaipi Arantia. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, so, so that guy is completely uh, uh, harmless. And to be honest, some of my favorite spiders are completely harmless too. Uh, for example, the uh, spined Micrathena. This is the guy where, that I just said, if you walk through the forest and you get a, uh, if you're on a trail and you get some web in your face, this is going to be the spider that caused that web in your face. They love to create webs in between uh, the trails. And they have this amazing abdomen that has this big black and uh, white spiky uh, abdomen, which uh, supposedly is either, a camouflage to look like bird poop possibly to hide from birds or um, because of those spikes maybe it's to ward off prey uh, to be honest I don't think they'd be because even though it looks really cool it's still kind of tiny right Paul it's not very big yeah, yeah. Uh, ha- hasn't n- never been bit n- n- never harmed me um, and another one of my, um, uh, which is my new favorites. I just learned about these guys a couple of weeks ago because of p- partially because of Paul, because uh, we were talking about there's 620 spiders in Ohio. Um, all but three are actually uh, uh, venomous. Um, previously, usually we say that all spiders are venomous, um, but there's actually a few families um, that lack venom glands. Now, even though uh, like Paul's garden spider has venom, it's designed to go after small insects, moths. If it bites you, which you'd really have to, you'd basically have to grab its head and stick it on your finger. And even then it probably wouldn't try and bite you. Um, it, it would be like, it'd be less than a bee sting, right? It, like a bees are technically venomous uh, and it, it would just be a small reaction. Um, but there are three non-venomous species. And one of the coolest is the triangle weaver. And what they do is they create like a triangle uh, web. And when, say, there's a little moth flying by, the triangle weaver makes that web really, really tight. He kind of pulls it and pulls it until he can barely hang hang onto it anymore. And when that moth gets close, he's going to let go of that web. And and the web is going to shoot and grab hold of that prey. And it's going to entangle the prey and then eventually 
hopefully the spider can eat it. Um, another um, spider that does something similar. So so I just find this kind of cool. I don't know if you've ever... You watch Spider-Man, right, Paul? Sure. All right, and seeing as I were naturalists, when I was a kid, I saw... Sp okay, actually, when I saw the first Spider-Man in the movies, uh, he could shoot webs out of his wrists, like right? Tobey Maguire. Tobey right? Maguire. I don't... I don't know how much of a nerd you are, but I guess the original Spider-Man had, like, mechanical things, right? I will decline to answer that question. Right. <laughs> well, well, the, um, the Spider-Man in the movie could shoot. I was like, spiders can't shoot webs. They, they, they pull the web out of their spinnerets, and then that's how they make the webs, right? Um, but this, there's a species of spider called a spitting spider. So I'm guessing that radioactive spider must have been mixed with the spitting spider, right? Because the spitting spider um, actually eats other spiders. And what it does, it hangs out uh, in, next to its web. And when it, it, another spider comes close enough to it, it will actually shoot um, webbing out of its uh, fangs. And, and it, it will shoot it out of its fat and, uh, yes, basically spit on its prey. And it's like this goopy stuff. And their prey gets caught in the goopy stuff. And, and, and then that's how they catch. So spiders are just amazing. I mean, um, I recommend going on YouTube and looking up um, emerald jumper spiders uh, and, the, and the peacock spiders displaying for the females. Definitely peacock. Look it up. It is mesmerizing. It's art. Yeah. I mean, it's an it, it's art. It's absolutely beautiful. Yes. Um, and we also have bolus spiders in Ohio, which basically make a bolus, basically a or like a big thing, a big ball on the end of their web that they swing around. And when the moth comes close enough, they'll whack it with the bolus and then curl it all up and then eat it that way. So yes, spiders are kind of gross and scary, and they even freak me out. But there's just so many species that are. Uh, abs absolutely astounding uh, right here in Cincinnati. So before we go any further, let's talk about exactly how spiders subdue and eat prey. So we talked about them being venomous, and most spiders, their venom is nothing like Tom said. It might be a bee sting unless you have you know a rare allergic reaction. It's nothing to really worry about. The far majority of spiders, they don't even have a mouth part large enough to even pierce your skin to begin with. People talk about waking up with all these bumps all over them and, oh, I must have been bitten by a spider last night. That's it's kind of poppycock. I mean, spiders, one, they're not going to go around just biting you because they're not going to eat you, clearly. And two, it, most spiders, they, again, they just don't have mouth parts large enough. They're not going to walk all over you and just continue to bite and bite and bite you. It's, it's probably a mite, a flea, bed bug, something else, not a spider. But they do still carry a venom, and they use that venom to subdue their prey, basically paralyze them, and then they inject digestive fluids, digesting this animal from the inside and then slurp it up into their mouth. I mean, their di external digestion is what that's called. So it's pretty horrific. Yes, you know, they're externally digesting <laughs> this insect and then eating it. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why we're so afraid of these critters. Um, like, for example, we're just so different compared to snakes. Like snakes, they smell with their tongues. They like cold, dark, um, enclosed areas. They they don't even have ears. They uh, they're cold blooded. They eat once every week or so, and then they never. Then they, they swallow their food whole. They're just so different from. And I, I that's kind of one of my hypotheses to why we're afraid of bats, spiders, snakes. Is that basically the further away from mammals and what we're used to, basically if they're nocturnal, if we don't see them very often, if they uh, eat their food, if they digest their food outside their body, it's, it's unusual to us and it makes our little brains come up with all these imaginative things that, oh, if they do this to that thing, what can they do to us? Uh, and I know you have a few thoughts on snakes and why people are afraid of snakes too, right, Paul? 
Yeah, so I have three reasons. One is just the, the biblical references to it. Um, but two, they don't have legs. So if you, right now, listeners out there, imagine a dog running. It's easy to do. You can see that it's four legs running. You know how that moves because that's how we move. Like Tom said, it's different than us. So I think that's one thing is, is snakes, if you try to imagine them moving, we can see it, but it's a little bit harder for us to comprehend hundreds of muscles working in unison to, to slither like they do. It's, just, it's different. So those are two things. And the third thing is, is they don't blink. So I love the Disney movie Robin oh. Hood and oh, the snake. I, I thought you were going to say Jungle Book. Well, that's a, a great second. one. Well, <laughs> actually, it does the same thing. It's the same idea as these snakes can hypnotize you with their eyes. And part is because they don't blink. They do have skin over their eyes. So if you ever find a recently shed snake skin and it's a good intact one, you can go to the head and you can still see there's that eye covering, that skin, but they're not blinking. So we don't know how they move, really. They don't blink. And it's just... Like Tom said, it's just different than how we perceive nature to work. And, they, and they're and they not apex predators. They're not on the top of the food chain. So when they see us, they think, oh my goodness, look at that big scary thing that's going to try and eat me. And they musk, they poop on themselves, they make themselves as gross as possible. Um, and then they'll try and bite us if we grab if we grab hold of them. And yes, there are venomous snakes in North America, in, in Hamilton County. As I've said when I talked to you know talk about snakes in the past, the last venomous snake uh, in Hamilton County was seen about 1964. So we don't really have confirmed confirmed. Yes, yeah, so uh, they could go up uh, the Ohio River or uh, maybe from Indiana or even eastern Ohio. I'm not saying that they could never pop up. And if somebody sees a, definitely a copperhead and they don't report it um, to Ohio State, yes, that could happen. Uh, but official reported case was like, what, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, what I like to say is there's no breeding populations of venomous snakes in Hamilton County. So there are three venomous snakes in Ohio, though. Tom mentioned one copperhead. There's the eastern Massasauga and the timber rattlesnake. Neither of those last two are anywhere near here. In fact, um, one of them's in danger. In danger. So... Yeah, we, we would actually like rare. this guy in Ohio. Yeah. The numbers are decreasing, so we need to do something to actually save that uh, that guy. Uh, little tiny rattlesnake, not not really a threat to him. Yeah, and most snakes, again, they're they're pretty docile as well. If you found a, a gray rat snake and you picked it up, one, it's best to just observe it, leave it alone. But like Tom said, it's going to musk you first, and if you're still brave enough <laughs> to hold it through that musk, well... Maybe it might, you might deserve a bite. I don't know. No, nobody does we've been. But either way, it's, they're, they're typically pretty docile, um, and they're just not really going to hurt. And if they did bite, they do have teeth. They're small. It'd be a bit of a scratch, but wash it out. And, and it bleeds know, too, right? I, tell, I think, bit, I think yeah. blood is the theme of this uh, program, Paul, because snakes have an anticoagulant that basically stops your blood from clotting, so you just bleed and bleed, which is, which is kind of neat. And uh, it, it looks a lot worse than it actually is. So yeah, that's that's another wondrous. But, it, but it'd be a small scratch. So it would. It might bleed and bleed, but it's from a small scratch. Yeah, so it's not exactly. like you're just gonna like. No, it looks a lot. Watch worse. your life drip away. No, so, no, no, not like those vampiric owls that we all know about. No, I don't think we all know about that. You don't know about the vampiric owls? No, but I think I'm about to learn. All right. Well, uh, there was these uh, wait, legend. Wait. Are we going back? 
to the intro quote here? No, no, no. We're not going back oh, to the intro okay. quote. This is Greek. So I know Wales is super awesome and super cool, but this is a, of Greek origin where uh, th- there was this uh, creature that was transformed into uh, an owl because basically the gods were like, we are going to kill you for doing all these terrible things. And the, the creature said, oh, please just have mercy on me. So they were like, all right, the god gods were weird. I don't know what the gods were thinking. They were like, okay, we'll turn you into a blood-sucking owl. And its name was the Strix. It wasn't quite an owl, uh, but I think it means like screeching or screaming. And uh, it, it actually has um, some modern connotations in that like barn owls have strix in the in, in the scientific name, right? So basically these owl-like creatures would come out at night and they would um, suck your children's uh, blood. So they, they like to go after children. You'd lay your head down, you'd wake up, and in the morning uh, your child would have its blood um, sucked and actually milk on its lips. So I don't exa- that was the myth was that the owls or oh, the Strixes would put the milk on, on the lips of the child. I'm kind of wondering if there's a scientific basis behind this, you know? There's always like, something. Well, even in the first episode that you and I did together, we talked about salamanders being born of fire. And it's yeah. a ridiculous idea, but there's always something behind that yes. to why the ancients would have thought something. So the idea of a bird drinking blood is clearly pretty crazy. Right? Oh, yeah, that would never happen yeah. in real life. Except... Oh, come on, Paul. Don't, except don't tell me if you go to the Galapagos Islands, there is a species of finch called a vampire finch. And the thinking is that years ago, they would eat insects off of the much larger blue-footed boobies, which are very populated in the Galapagos Islands. Mm. So they would peck all of these insects off. And at some point down the line, one of those maybe pecked a little too hard, drew a little blood and found this blood to be far more nutritious. So all of these vampire finches now in the Galapagos, they have this strange relationship with the blue footed boobies and they will peck at their feathers, causing them to bleed. And they will actually then drink the blood. Hmm. Boobies don't seem to really care that much. Yeah. If it's maybe they still think, hey, they're eating insects off of me, and the whole time the finch is back there laughing like, nope, I'm drinking your blood. I don't know, <laughs> but either way. They have more important things to deal with than, than finches yes. on Galapagos Island. So there actually is a species of bird that will drink blood. Interesting. Uh, so there is a species of bird that drinks blood, but obviously owls don't drink blood. And to be honest, nowadays owls are kind of viewed as, you know, pretty and they're, they're on Facebook all the time. Everybody loves owls. They've got the big cute eyes. But for hundreds of years, people were terrified of owls. They were kind of like the co, the co-evil being of, of bats. It was bats and owls with the big evil guys of night. And there was a lot of stories. Basically, if um, in a lot of European countries, if a, if you heard an owl uh, next to your house at nighttime, that's a bad omen. You're going you're gonna to die. And uh, th- there was even one where I heard like uh, a lot of seafaring. Uh, how terrible is this? If you if you um, heard an owl at a certain part of the night when uh, like the lighthouse is moving or something, supposedly the ship that your dad is on is gonna go down. <laughs> so not your ship, but the one your dad is on. Yeah, I know. Like how horrible. Like I feel like that's something a bully would say in high school or something. <laughs> it's terrible. There is one really. Um, so for the most part, owls do kind of have um, a lot of bad omens, a lot of bad stories to them. But there is one really uh, heartwarming sto- uh, story. It's it's a Polish myth that basically. 
Owls only come at nighttime uh, because they were they're so beautiful. They, they uh, th there's actually another part of it too that like uh, owls represent beautiful married women that died. But basically, owls are so beautiful that they can't come out in the daytime because all the other birds are jealous of them and they all attack them. And as you probably know, right, w why that would be, right, Paul? I mean, I totally understand because I only come out at night as well. Oh, in fact, we're recording so this at 2 a.m. Just for the <laughs> listeners so you know it's yeah, 2 a.m. Yeah, you know, when I go out with Paul and I do nature programs, I just, I might as well just turn around because everybody's just like, oh my goodness, look how, look how amazing that guy is. He's so beautiful. And then they start getting jealous and attacking and I have to ward them off. <laughs> so it could be that or it could just be that other birds are fearful of these larger owls and wood actually do attack and mob them. That's exactly right. So this myth is kind of true, which, I mean, it's not because they're so beautiful. It's because the owls are going to eat their family members, right? They're going to prey on them. Uh, I, I just think that's, uh, I just think that's really, it's, it's a nice little story, but it's kind of like the opposite. It's actually the fact that these owls are getting mobbed because they are apex predators and they're pretty, they are pretty amazing predators. So what we've seen then is a lot of these myths, these ideas are founded in what people are honestly observing, it's just a lack of understanding of what they're actually seeing. They're interpreting it the wrong way, essentially. So the more we dive in, the more we begin to understand, the less kind of fearful we need to be of these things. We begin to see the truth as opposed to the, the myths and the old wives' tales that go along with that. And I think a lot of it is primal, too. I think we need to get over our primal fears. I was, a, I wouldn't pick up a spider. My professor said, if I don't pick up a wolf spider, he's going to fail me in the class. I picked up the wolf spider. I was like, okay, he's not so bad. And that, and, and the more you learn, I, I almost forgot about my favorite spider, the pumpkin spider. I'm talking about Halloween. This is the time for the pumpkin spider. Yeah, so yes. if you go out uh, around Halloween and uh, you um, go around your garden and you see a bright yellow spider, that's actually an orb we the female orb that has this great big um, orange abdomen that looks just like a pumpkin. How, how fitting for Halloween is that? That's just astounding. So I, as I said, I think even our, our, if we just get over our primal fears and our misunderstandings, I think that can lead to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot more understanding and maybe, you know, hopes for conservation in the future too, because a lot of these species are in trouble. All right. So let's move on. We've talked about things that seemingly scary, but aren't. I want to talk about some things that kind of are a little scary, but not necessarily to us. You're a human. For the most part, you're safe from this stuff. But, you know, Halloween time, and especially in the last couple of years, one thing that has become extremely popular are zombies. Big, oh, never mind. I was going to say big inflatable TRXs, but zombies, yeah. Let's talk about zombies here. All right. All right. And I have a tale of the tapeworm, a brine shrimp, and a flamingo. I feel like this is a game show, like... What is the connection between these three things? They all like to bowl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. A tapeworm, a, a swarm of brine shrimp, and a flamingo walk into a bar. Actually, the thing that um, pulls them all together is the life cycle of the tapeworm that, that brings all these three things together. So essentially, the larvae of this tapeworm infect the brine shrimp, which if you think brine shrimp, just think sea, sea monkeys. monkeys. Yes, if you ever had sea monkeys... Um, my best friend bought me some in seventh grade. It's a great gift. But sea monkeys and these tapeworm larvae castrate the sea monkeys because tapeworm is like, hey, I don't want you to expend any energy on that. I need your energy. So it castrates them. It turns them red so they're far more visible. And it causes them to swarm on their own. These brine shrimp will not swarm because a lot of times there might be safety impacts. Think of zebras, that black and white stripe. There's a bunch of them. The 
thinking is that it's harder for a lion to pick one out. So there's safety in numbers, not in this case though. So these shrimp, they're now red and they're swarming together. It's much easier for these flamingos to find these brine shrimp and eat them. And the whole purpose of that is because the tapeworm wants to get inside of its flamingo, which is its host where it can actually reproduce. So you're saying the reason why flamingos are red is because of tapeworms? Ooh, I, you got me. I thought it was iodine, <laughs> but I don't know. That's that's a that's another question that maybe we'll it, have maybe, to, maybe to look it, at. Maybe it has a small effect, but there's probably yeah. other chemicals that turn them red, right? But anyway, these tapeworms are able to essentially chemically control these brine shrimp to swarm, which causes the flamingo to eat them because it's, hey, there's a swarm of them. I'm going to spend my time eating these here. And then that tapeworm is able to get into that digestive system of the flamingo and reproduce. So they're these zombie brine shrimp. Pretty interesting. But that's not the only zombies here. All right, we also have the geometer moth and the wasp. You familiar with this one? Nope. So this one, there's videos of this. You can search for this online and find videos of, of this moth, which is just insane. But essentially, there's a wasp, and it lays its eggs inside of the caterpillar. Now, which this is not an uncommon flies thing. flies do kind of... Yeah, I was about to say, that's, it's a pretty common... Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, it's what parasites do. They lay inside of other insects that then... They don't kill them. They'll typically eat them alive from the inside out. Then the... They burst forth out of the bodies. So this wasp lays eggs in the caterpillar. These eggs hatch. The larvae come out. They eat their way out of the caterpillar's body, but not all of them leave. So some of them do leave, and they begin to pupate to turn into the adult wasp. Some of them stay behind, though, and chemically control this caterpillar. And this caterpillar, it's already been eaten from the inside out, still somehow manages to stay alive, but it's now under the control of these wasps. And these wasps control it in order to protect the pupa. And so what happens is when anything comes near, say a stink bug or something else that might want to eat these pupa, that movement somehow triggers this caterpillar to start thrashing wildly. So it's like a, like a, so it's probably immobile, right? Yeah. And basically they just affect the nerves so that the thing has to wiggle when a predator comes by. Yes, and so it either scares it away or it knocks it off the the branch so it can't get to these larvae. So this caterpillar was its food and its protector. I mean, they always say don't bite the hand that feeds you, but in this case... In this case, it helps them, right? (laughs) Yes. So again, they're essentially zombies. Another great zombie is the emerald cockroach wasp. And this is kind of a newer one. This This is a new one, I think, that they have found. It injects its venom into the cockroach, but not just anywhere. This isn't just a venom that immobilizes its prey like most venoms are. Its stinger is actually a sensory organ. So it sticks its stinger into the head of the cockroach, and it can feel around for the nerve ganglion, which is essentially an insect brain. So it knows exactly where to place its venom. And that venom does one thing, and it cuts off the escape habit of that cockroach. So no longer is this cockroach going to flee in fear because this venom is is inhibiting it from actually running away. And this wasp can now control it and basically steer it back to its lair. Well, it it will lay its eggs inside of the cockroach, larvae hatch, eat the cockroach inside out. One more here, the zombie. This is the freakiest one. Again, you can, to me it is. You can find this video online as well. There's a horsetail worm. It's also called a Gordian worm because of a Gordian knot, if you're familiar with that. I had one of these in my house one day, by the way. I Burn your house down. (laughs) But these larvae infect the cricket, and 
the adults will then begin to grow inside of this cricket. The thing about the adults is once they're grown, they don't, they don't need a host anymore. They want to be in the water. So it can chemically control this cricket to jump in the water. Crickets can't swim. So it controls this cricket to commit suicide. Jumps in the water, it dies, and then out of the cricket comes this horsetail worm. And you can find videos of this worm emerging out of the dead adult cricket that just committed suicide by drowning. And another cool thing about these horsetail worms is that they're infecting people now. So how fun is that? Um, yeah, humans. Yeah, well, okay. So if you talk to an actual scientist who's much more intelligent than me, they'll say that these species are species specific. So they'll either go after cockroaches or crickets or grasshoppers, and each one will go after a different kind. Like they don't, they don't just find a random host and just go into it. Well, in Japan, there's a species that um, it, it doesn't live. I don't think it lives in North America, but it's actually been found in two people so far. It was like a 80 year old woman and a four year old boy, and the four year old boy opened his mouth and the mom saw the worm crawling out of his mouth so yeah that's gross so we're worried about bats and the whole time there's this poor child with a horsetail worm crawling out of it yeah mouth. and that's kind of the thing is you know we're afraid of bats and coyotes and snakes but the things that we should be wor worried about are worms and bacteria and nematodes and and hookworms and roundworms and all the other fun stuff that gets inside of us and See, here's the thing, though. There's probably a lot of people out there that have never heard of these things, and they were blissfully going along in ignorance, <laughs> and we just totally ruined their day. Yeah, I mean, we even have um, we have parasitic bugs on our eyebrows, right? So everybody knows about that one, though. So, but they just kind of hang out; they don't hurt us. Um, so, kind of. And fun. this thing with with I mean, something like 99% of bacteria are actually incredibly helpful for us. Yeah, it's a very small percentage that. Are can be incredibly dangerous, but for the most part, it's good. So I want to end on, you know, I talked about this segment is, is maybe the benign and the beautiful that really is terrifying. And I want to take one of the most benign and beautiful things that you could probably think of when you think summertime. My you wife. Think of <laughs> <laughs> Next to your wife. It's summertime. It's dusk. There's this beautiful little glow in the backyard. You're a child. You run to it to catch it, to look at its beauty, to be in awe of it. It blinks at you saying, hello, child, I love you. And then you let it go as Honestly, it Honestly, if on. someone said, hello, child, I love you, and it was a little thing, I'd probably be a little freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, I'm talking about... Uh, uh, lightning bugs, fireflies. Lightning bugs. We all love lightning. Nobody doesn't like lightning bugs, but I'm going to... Take us in a little bit deeper into some of the private lives of lightning bugs and see that they're maybe not so benign. But if you've ever seen a lightning bug larvae, and chances are you might have seen one and had no idea that that's what it is because they kind of look alienish. You would never guess that this is a lightning bug. But there's kind of looks like a plated worm almost. So the larvae are actually very voracious predators. And they climb on the backs of snails. They have these really sharp jaws that will I slit. I snail away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, so the larvae climb on the back of these snails, slit the back of their neck. They inject a venom that paralyzes a snail and then a digestive juice, kind of similar to spiders, that di externally digests this snail and then they begin to suck the snail dry of its life. What species of 
Um, this, these are larvae. The 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 jay, many of the, the, the no. The I'm talking many larvae. species. Oh, okay. All species really of these larvae are extremely voracious predators. Oh, okay. They like those soft body snails and worms, things like that. I and they'll not know find that. them, cut them up, inject them, and slurp them up. So these larvae, and if you ever find a good picture of a larvae of a lightning bug up close. It's the stuff of nightmares. I mean, it's these huge pinchers and jaws, and I mean, it's, it's very alien-like. But you say, okay, it's when they're young. They've grown up. They're nicer, right? Well, not quite. So there's a couple different genre of lightning bugs in this area, and the largest one is the Photurus. And I'm talking like size of the lightning bug, largest, the Photurus. They're also known as the Femme Fatales. You have the smaller genus of Photinus. And lightning bugs are flying around, they're flashing, looking for a mate. Males are flying, that's what you typically see when they flash. And they each species has their own flash pattern. So Photinus is out there flashing its flash pattern. Photurus female is sitting somewhere on a branch, and she mimics the flash pattern of that specific Photinus species. What time of the year does this? So this is going on... Just when lightning bugs are out in the summertime, late or early summer to late summer, depending on the species. So this male Photinus is thinking, there's a female. She's interested. So he lands, suddenly realizes, nope, this is a larger Photurus female, but it's too late. Time to get away. Yes. But the Photurus grabs it and eats him alive. Just nice. chews him to bits because the Photinus is carrying a toxin. So suddenly these nice benign, even the nice photinus ones that get eaten still carry a toxin on them. And so the photurus eats it, incorporates that toxin, and so spiders will eat it. It absorbs his power. You know, what's kind of interesting about that is, you know, we think of um, the praying mantis uh, and spiders as the ones that eat their ladies. But for the most part, they usually only eat, actually the ladies eat the males, but for the most part, again, kind of like the little brown bat in an enclosed area, so a lot of that is in enclosed scientific labs. And in the wild, that actually doesn't happen nearly as often. But it's kind of like, oh, great, that's like my only food source. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat it now. And people have extrapolated from that. Oh, I guess mantises always eat the, the females always eat the guys, when in most part, they usually get away from, from to the best of my knowledge. Uh, there are some reports of praying mantis actually eating hummingbirds. That is true. Yeah, I've, I have seen that. That's pretty, in, that's yeah. pretty intense. That's and pretty there's a great intense. movie. It's a black and white horror movie, The Deadly Mantis, if you're ever interested. So. Folks, that is our show for today. I hope we have the hairs on your arms standing up and your insides crawling. Thank you to Tom the Terrible for being with us today. And Paul the Seavers the Deceiver joining us today. <laughs> and of course, thank you, listener, for joining us today on Take It Outdoors, a podcast where you can enjoy the outdoors from the indoors. I hope you have a truly terrifying and wonderful Halloween. If you want to dress as something truly horrific this Halloween, dress as your favorite parasite. I'm sure a nice horsetail worm <laughs> what will do you, the trick. What are you, Jimmy? I'm a tapeworm. <laughs> and if you do, please, 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 please post a picture to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash greatparkshc, or tag us on Instagram at great underscore parks. Visit our website at greatparks.org for more information on all of our parks. And check us out next month for our next episode. Until then, I'm Paul Seavers. Eat lots of candy, be safe, and get outside. Enjoy nature.